This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Good afternoon. It's my great honor and my privilege to welcome you to this conversation today between Justice Elena Kagan and Professor David Strauss. My guess is that everyone in the room knows who I am, but for those on the web or uh, watching this on video, I'm Michael Schill, and I'm the dean of the University of Chicago Law School. There are few more exciting days at the law school than when a Supreme Court justice comes to visit. And I know I speak for everyone here to say that it is especially exciting to welcome home one of our own. I have had the great good fortune of knowing Justice Kagan since the days when everyone called her Elena. We were undergraduates together at Princeton. She was in the class of 1981, although we're dating ourselves, I'm dating ourselves right now, and I was in the class of 1980. At the time, Elena was extinguishing herself as a reporter and editor of the Daily Princetonian. I was on the business side of the newspaper trying to do as little as possible. <laughs> now, from there on, she earned a Master of Philosophy at Oxford and a JD from a Harvard Law School, where she was supervisory editor of the Harvard Law Review. A New Yorker by both birth and mindset, her Chicago ties began right out of law school with a clerkship with one of our most beloved alumni, Abner Mikva, who was then a judge on the DC Court of Appeals. She then clerked for Justice Thurgood Marshall at the Supreme Court, who called her quote-unquote shorty. The nickname may not fit as well in the present company of the court as those of you who were here for Justice Ginsburg's talk last year can attest. Now, in 1991, Justice Kagan joined our faculty. As the many alumni and faculty with whom I've met have told me, it is hard to overstate how beloved and influential Professor Kagan was here in our community. She was an extraordinary teacher right out of the gate. She regularly scored among the very highest in her teaching evaluations, and those teaching evaluations are still on record, although you can't have access to them. <laughs> Indeed, after only two years, she received a teaching award from the class of 1993. Her scholarship while here at the law school was firmly rooted in constitutional law. Her first few articles were all about the First Amendment and free speech, especially hate speech and government regulation of speech. Those articles established her as a first-class legal scholar and a fierce debater. They continue to influence legal thought on the subject as reflected by a recent article in the New York Times by Adam Liptak. Elena Kagan's impact on our school went beyond teaching and scholarship. She embraced and was embraced by our community. She was a regular at the Lyric Opera. She even started rooting for the White Sox, at least for a temporary period. She was on the faculty trivia team. She was the faculty guest at the 1995 Law School Musical. And she was always a presence in the Green Lounge. Students look up to Elena. Indeed, many adored her. One of our associate deans was a student of hers and likes nothing more than to tell me stories about how she spent more than she should have 
at the CLF auction for the honor of losing all of her money to Professor Kagan at poker. One of the members of our visiting committee, when she was asked whether she wanted a ticket for this event, said, quote, took two classes with her. I loved her. Alas for us, Justice Kagan had a passion for public service. So in 1995, our loss became President Clinton's gain. She became an associate White House counsel and deputy assistant to the president for domestic policy and then deputy director of the Domestic Policy Council. After four years at the White House, she joined the faculty of her alma mater, the Harvard Law School, and became its dean in 2003, one year before I became dean at UCLA. Now, it may come as a surprise to some of you, but recently appointed deans go to something called New Dean School, taught by senior colleagues. I remember Elena at New Dean School providing wonderful advice so you can blame her for anything I do wrong as dean uh, after that, something that she did repeatedly after I became dean and before she went on to her service in Washington. She was a wonderful colleague and an extraordinary dean. She headed a capital campaign that raised $476 million for the school, and by sheer force of personality, was able to bring harmony to a fractured law school and break a logjam in hiring. Of course, I have mixed feelings about this. I will always remember working for months to retain a faculty member at UCLA. And just when everything was wrapped up, Elena, unbeknownst to me, flew into LA, met with this faculty member, and he was gone to Harvard. <laughs> now, we have never discussed this before, Elena. But with so many Secret Service agents all around, I think I'm going to move to the next topic. <laughs> so in 2009, President Obama, who she also got to know when she was teaching here, appointed her Solicitor General of the United States, where she became the first woman in this position. In 2010, she became the 112th Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Justice Kagan's tenure has been a breath of fresh air on this court. She brings to the court her intellect and her passion. Of course, she also brings brilliant and eloquent writing and a desire to make opinions to the court accessible to all citizens. Much like her teaching, her opinion writing has been smart, funny, and excellent from the very beginning, making her look like a veteran from day one. Now, in just a moment, Justice Kagan will be in conversation with Professor David Strauss, her longtime friend and colleague, with whom she shares a lot in common. Professor Strauss, of course, also needs no introduction in this room, given that he is celebrating his 30th year on our faculty this year, but that's never stopped me before. He's the Gerald Ratner Distinguished Service Professor of Law and one of the nation's leading authorities on constitutional law. Like Justice Kagan, he graduated from Harvard Law School also clerked for Judge Goldberg on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Also like Justice Kagan, Professor Strauss served significant time in the public sector in the offices of legal counsel and solicitor general. He has argued 18 cases before the Supreme Court, five of them while on our faculty, and filed more than 40 briefs on the merits. He's the author of dozens of articles on constitutional law and a recent incredibly influential book entitled The Living Constitution. 
He's also editor of the Supreme Court Law Review. Perhaps the most important thing that he has in common with Justice Kagan is his renown as a teacher. David has received the annual teaching award five separate times, which is a record by a considerable margin. Today we welcome Justice Kagan back to the law school, a place where she has made, you have made, a tremendous mark, a place where you thrive, and a place where we will always call you one of our own. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Justice Elena Kagan and Professor David Strauss. Justice Kagan, welcome back. It's really great to be here, David. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for that tremendous introduction. Thank you for your warm welcome over the course of the day. It's really great to be back here. It's been a while. And, uh, I'm, 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 uh, you know, there was a moment yesterday when uh, it was pretty clear that I was not going to get here if I stuck with my, uh, my pre-existing airplane reservation. And the question was, should I try to get on a 7.30 in the morning plane to come into a blizzard? <laughs> Which is what my secretary sort of suggested to me. And I said, do I want to go that much? <laughs> but uh, but I, I'm glad that the answer was yes. I'm really glad to be here. It's great to, to see you all. Um, now, you're starting your fifth term, in the middle of your fifth term on the court, but you're still junior by, you're still the junior member of the court. The junior justice. The junior justice. Now, is it true that, that they make you answer the door in the conference? Yes, because, they regularly haze me. I mean, so you can't, if Justice Kennedy's closer to the door, you're Justice Breyer, you can't say, Tony, Steve, I am the closest to time. the door. I, I am see. the closest to the door for a reason, because <laughs> I'm supposed to answer the door. Actually, there, there are two things that I have to do. One is, um, uh, and they, they a little bit conflict with each other. One is that the junior justice takes all the notes from the conference because, as I think most people know, it's just the nine of us in there. There's nobody else, no clerks, none of the people from the clerk's office. And somebody has to communicate what we've done in there to the rest of the people around the court who need to know. So, uh, so I'm in charge of like taking all our notes, and then all my colleagues leave at the end, and I stay, and a whole bunch of the court personnel, mostly from the clerk's office and also from our legal office, come in, and at that point, I tell them everything that's happened and all the votes that we've done. So that's one part of my job. And the other part of my job, as you say, is... Uh, actually, there are three parts of my job. I'm going to give you another. But the other part is to open the door... And you think, well, well, who's knocking, you know? <laughs> because everybody knows that this is private and confidential and nobody... But it turns out my colleagues, yeah, some of them sometimes, a little bit forgetful. So, you know, the, the door knocks, and it's this strange kind of there are two doors. So one person opens one door from one side, and the other person opens the other door from the other side, and you kind of meet in between. And, um, uh, you know, somebody's bringing one of my colleagues's eyeglasses, or, uh, or you know, they've left a file in their office, or they really need another cup of coffee, or well, whatever. And uh, so, you know, there I am. I'm trying to take notes, you know, and I have to keep on bopping up and down to get the door, which is hard. 
No, so it's among the hardest things I, I do. No, I'm fun. exaggerating, of course. <laughs> Uh, but there is a little bit of like, oh, the junior justice. Let's have the junior justice do it. It's like Mikey, you know? Uh, but the third part, and this, um, the chief justice's counselor, who's a very important man in the, in, in the court, great, great guy, when I got confirmed, he came over to the Solicitor General's office where I was at the time, the day before the confirmation vote, and he just sort of like sat down with me and said, you know, here are the things that are going to happen to you over the next few days, and I want to uh, let you know about all these things and make sure that they're good with you. And he said, okay, and of course, uh, the junior justice always sits on the cafeteria committee. <laughs> so I was like, this is a big part of your job now. You know, the junior justice <laughs> sits on the cafeteria committee. And I had been a dean, so deans, they know about cafeterias. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. so... Mm-hmm. Uh, I took this, but there I am. I'm the junior justice. So once a month, I go to the cafeteria committee meeting, where we discuss um, how are the recipe for the chocolate chip cookies the same or different? You know. So. And the divide five four on that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this continues until someone else gets appointed. To the justice Breyer did it for 13 years, yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like Justice Sotomayor, yeah, nine months and out, yeah, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's brutal. <laughs> um, let me ask you sort of apart from those uh, things, something less momentous, which is um, something just sort of something when you went on the court, even though you knew the court well from having been Solicitor General, from having been a, uh, a law professor, the things that surprised you apart from having to answer the door and so on, things that still surprised you about the court or things that that would surprise us about what it's like on the inside? Well, you know, one of the things I thought when I got there is that what was most surprising was how little was surprising. And I I don't mean like, oh, I knew everything. Um, I mean it in the sense of um, it's an institution that is pretty stable and that changes very slowly. And I had been there about I think it was 23 years earlier as a clerk. Mm-hmm. Of course, I had been Solicitor General the prior year. And in that way, you get to see a lot of what the court does and its processes and uh, uh, manners of, of, of working. But as a clerk, I had been there you know, over two decades ago. And I thought for sure it would be a very different institution. Uh, and it turned, they were all, almost all different personnel, mm-hmm. not quite all. But in lots of ways, the court functioned in the exact same way. Uh, and in, in ways that sometimes uh, at, at the beginning seemed to me funny, but now I think I appreciate a lot more. So, you know, it turns out that in the world, and during those 23 years, there was a communications revolution, right? <laughs> well, not really in the court. <laughs> Where email is considered kind of beyond us, you know? Uh, we, we all communicate with each other still by, uh, you know, we write these memos and then somebody literally walks them around the building. Hmm. Uh, uh, so we're not in email communication with each other, except maybe informally, uh, uh, one to one to one. Um, uh, and you know, just the ways that the court operates, the procedures it uses, the, the the ways the justices communicate with each other, are to a surprising extent really the same as they have been at least for several decades. So, and then the people, honestly, so one of the first things that the Chief Justice did when I got to the court was he gave me a tour of the whole place and we went around to office to office to office 
And uh, he introduced me to people, and just a shocking number of people said to me, oh, I remember you from when you were a clerk. And uh, sort of like you thought, oh, was I okay then, <laughs> you know? But, um, you know, uh, uh, the personnel is very stable, and the court as an institution is very stable, and it's actually one of the things I've grown to appreciate about the place, that this is an institution that kind of works just in the way it operates, and, and, uh, uh, and its traditions and practices have a kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, beauty might seem a little mm. bit far-fetched, but... Mm. Um, I guess the thing that really is a surprise is what it sounds like in conference, right? That that's the thing that nobody knows. So you can have a pretty good sense of the court and the way it operates and the kinds of cases it takes and the, and the ways it decides them. But it's like, well, what's it, what does it sound like in there? And that's the thing that I think for everybody is new. And I remember the Chief Justice and I talking about this, talking about our first conference and what surprised us and and uh, you know, I remember going in. It was um, it was it was what we call the long conference, where we talk about a gazillion cert petitions, and and we go through them pretty quickly. But I was so overprepared for that conference. <laughs> you know, I knew them in the way you would know merits uh, uh-huh. cases, as opposed to the way we do cert work. And um, but uh, but just the, I, I think um, if there were a fly on the wall of that conference. Um, I mean, I think one of the really great su- surprises or, you know, it's just, it's an unknown. It's the black box. And then it's like, well, what does it sound like? I think it sounds awfully good. Mm-hmm. I think if you were a fly on the wall, you would say, oh, these people, they're, uh, they're really, uh, they're, 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 they're thinking hard, you know, and they're trying to get it right. And they're really well prepared. They've, you know, digested all the arguments and there are disagreements for sure. And uh, but the, this, these are nine people who were really engaged and really thinking about every case that comes along and and really uh, talking with each other in a you know pretty sophisticated way. Yeah. So yeah. I th- I thought that that was a great surprise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, not you know a great like I'm shocked, right. but it was like a uh, it was a great thing to 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 know to see that right right right. Now when you got there, I mean you've had all this as as, as Mike Schill said, all these amazing jobs in academia, and, and you worked on the Hill for a while, and then you were a, 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 a law person in the White House, and then a policy person in the White House, and then, a, as Mike said, a transformational dean of, of Harvard Law School. Uh, was there something when you got to the court that you said, boy, I'm sure glad I did that, because that really is helping me with my new job? And then the other side of that, is there something where you've thought over the years, you know, I wish, you know, if I knew where I was going to end up, I would have done this, or I would have spent more time doing doing uh, doing something else in my in my career. So you know, I mean, I think the the obvious thing is, oh, being solicitor general helped me when I got to the court, and that for sure is true. That as solicitor general, all you do really is think about the court. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I used to think, well, I had this job last year where I spent twenty three hours of every day thinking about. Uh, how to persuade nine people, and now the only difference is that I spend that exact same amount of time trying to figure out how to persuade eight people, uh-huh. you know? Um, uh, and, uh, and, and so that was great preparation. I think in some sense the job that you can have that's closest to being a Supreme Court justice is not actually being a circuit court judge. It's being solicitor general because mm-hmm. there you are and you're completely engaged 
in the court's work and its docket. You're watching all of them every day. You're thinking about all of them every day. Um, them being us, you know. Um, uh, so, in, you know, in one sense, that's the answer to the question. But uh, in, a, in a different way, and maybe a more surprising way, I think the thing uh, that day-to-day for me matters most in, in, um, uh, about my background is, is being a teacher. And not being a dean, but truly being a teacher. And the reason is, um, is that, you know, uh, at least for me, the way I used to teach was I would come in in the morning before class and I'd think, how am I going to communicate some complicated set of materials to some set of people who were interested and engaged and really smart but didn't know everything that I knew? And, uh, and that process of trying to figure out how to get a person from here to here in terms of you know, just, just how to uh, explain complicated things to people and how to uh, make those things stick with a person. Uh, I feel as though that's the process I use every time I sit down to write an opinion. And, and, uh, and I feel it very consciously, like I'm now doing the kind of thing that I used to do when I would prepare for a class. Mm-hmm. It's like to, to really sit there and think, okay, first you have to accept A, and then you have to accept B, and then it's time to move to point C in exactly the way I did it when I was teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I think it's, it's, it's that that most influences day-to-day because a huge part of my job is sitting down at a computer and uh, you know, figuring out how to explain things to people mm-hmm. and how to persuade people of various things. And that's closest to preparing for class. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, now, about the cases, let me ask you, let me ask you this. I mean, it, it's... Every case that goes to the Supreme Court is a hard case with rare exceptions because if it weren't a hard case, your court wouldn't have to deal with it. The lower courts would resolve it without your court stepping in. But in that category of hard cases, are there some that you find especially hard, not in the sense that they're divisive or something like that, but that in your own mind, you think it over and think it over and you draft and redraft your opinions a certain category of cases where when they come along, you find that you're, you're likely to be doing that, um, or are they just all kind of hard cases? Um, well, they're hard. They're all hard. Uh, I, I guess the ones that are hardest might fall into uh, two categories. I mean, one is there are uh, issues that I sometimes deal with now that I've never thought about before. Um, so, uh, you know, even as late as this is my fifth year, so I'm... Uh, uh, majority that, that hasn't come out yet, but, but in, on, on, a, on, a, on a, a kind of case that I had just not had any experience with before, whether in my academic life or a solicitor general. Uh, and when you think of the broad category of things that we do, of course, um, uh, most people, even the people who have been judges for years and years, come to a place where it's like, oh, that's a new kind of question or a new topic or a, a, a new subject matter. And those are uh, hard just because you have to sort of get up to speed in ways that you might not if somebody hands me an administrative law question or something like that. So, um, uh, you know, there are those sorts of cases. You know, but sometimes there are cases that fall right in what you've always considered your wheel box, and, and, and they can be incredibly tough. So I was recently asked a question in another uh, venue um, but what was the case where I felt myself going 
back and forth and really having a difficult time making up my mind. And, uh, and the truth of the matter is that doesn't happen all that often for me, that I'm, not, I'm a good decision maker, uh, that, uh, that I take time and that I think through things and I try to absorb things. And, but over time, I come to a decision and then I'm not a person who, who's very Hamlet-like. I don't keep bopping back and forth. I don't experience a lot of regret. I'm a, you know, I'm a good decision maker. But the one time that I can remember where that was really not the case was in this First Amendment case. And you would think, well, you know, Mike Schell said, um, you know, some significant part of my academic career was in First Amendment mm-hmm. law. You would think I would kind of know what I think on that. But, uh, but maybe sometimes just because uh, you've uh, spent a lot of time thinking about that subject matter, and maybe that, uh, that that has something to do with why you can play out the arguments on both sides mm-hmm. in your head mm-hmm. really pretty well. And this was a case where it's a case about whether kids could uh, buy violent video games without the consent of their parents. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there were and there ended up being three opinions, and I was the fifth vote for the opinion that eventually became the majority, which was Justice Scalia's, saying that the uh, that the law was unconstitutional, the law that prohibited this from happening. And uh, I at different points of time, I was on. I, I thought that each of those opinions was right, uh, and. Uh, and I ended up joining Justice Scalia's just because I thought that was truly, truly the way First Amendment doctrine worked, that it would arrive you at that result. But I completely understood some of my colleagues who thought that that result was an untenable one, mm-hmm. and that if that was the way First Amendment doctrine worked, maybe it was time to change First Amendment doctrine and do something different. Uh, and uh, so that was a really hard one for me. Mm-hmm. Are you, are, do you get, in cases like this, or for that matter, in not-so-hard cases, do you get what you need from advocates by way of arguments, information? It might not be their fault, but it might just be there's certain sort of insularity to what you get that you're not, for either, either it's their fault or for some other reason you're not getting what you, what you want from advocates. Is that the case, or is, or is it I think the advocates fun? who appear before us do a fantastic job. Uh-huh. I mean, there's been uh, one of the things that's happened over the last 20 years or so at the Supreme Court is the development of a kind of Supreme Court bar, people who are repeat players and who have been there before and who know what the whole enterprise is about, know the way we think, know the kinds of questions we ask, know the kinds of, uh, the kinds of things that matter to us as we reach a decision. And I think it's an unqualified good for the court. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that for the most part we get fantastic lawyering. And indeed when we don't, I, I mean it's so obvious because in general the level of advocacy is so excellent that sometimes you, when you see the opposite, when you see the people who, who, who you know, might be good lawyers but in a different venue and sort of don't get the kinds of questions that we ask, the kinds of issues that interest us and concern us and make us rule one way or the other way, it can be very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, I think that the bar serves us really super mm-hmm. well. And then, of course, for a lot of cases now, we get not only the parties' briefs, but a ton of amicus briefs, um, you know, sometimes too many, sometimes more than anybody can read. Um, so, so for me, I use my clerks as a kind of tell me what I really need to pay attention to among the 
tens and tens of amicus briefs that we get in some cases. So, so I don't feel at all as though somehow we're not getting the right mm -hmm. kind of information. Um, you know, in most cases, I feel quite to the opposite. That we're sort of getting it and then getting it again and then getting it again. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, and, you know, of course, none of us are completely cloistered. So, you know, to the extent that you think that there uh, are, are things outside that can be helpful to you, I don't talk to people. But, uh, but you know, I think all of us are, uh, you, know, uh, you know, if there are law review articles or if there are blogs or whatever, I mean, that stuff is all available to you as well. Uh, so I think we have, like, Quite enough information, thanks. Okay, okay. Now, Justice Kagan, enough about you. Let's talk about us. Uh, uh, but I say that because you were one of us. Um, uh, so when you sort of, you know, you were, you were a law professor, sort of had a, a long and multifaceted career in academia. Now when you sort of think about that, are there things that went on either on the teaching or scholarship side that you think were, you know, were really especially good, that were being done the right way? And then the other side of that question, whether there are things that you know, should be done differently in law schools you know, from your perspective now. You know, I'm kind of a law school booster. I don't have many complaints about law schools. Um, uh, you, you, you know, not everything that um, law faculty do in terms of their scholarship are very useful or helpful to the Supreme Court, but I think that that's completely okay that the Supreme Court is not the only important legal actor in the world, that there are lots of different audiences for faculty scholarship, for student scholarship, and some people may choose to address what they're doing uh, to uh, uh, something that's before us. Or some people might choose to talk about some broader questions of statutory interpretation or constitutional interpretation that also have, uh, have a real relationship to what we do. And other people might choose to do completely different things, you know, speak to one or another audience in the legal profession or to Congress or to different players in this university, you know, to the historians or to the economists. And what we shouldn't think, we shouldn't think that the only uh, uh, thing that uh, folks uh, in law schools ought to be thinking and writing about is the things that we are. I mean, that would, uh, we have our own clerks. You know, we don't need mm -hmm. the law mm -hmm. faculties of America to sign up for, for us. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, in terms of uh, the, the teaching that goes on in law schools, I mean, I've only been at two, and they're two great law schools, and I have really fond feelings about both. But I think, you know, in both those places, I would say, uh, uh, you know, my, my experience at this one goes back further, the, the one I'm, I'm uh, closer to is Harvard's, but I would say, if you ask me, like, should, is there something really different that they should be teaching uh, there? Um, you know, one of the things that I, that I spent a lot of time on at Harvard was thinking about curricular issues, and the thing that I thought Harvard needed was uh, a lot more attention to statutory and regulatory subjects, including in the f first year. Um, as compared to all the common law stuff that one does get in the first year. Um, uh, and I'm sure that there are other things, too, that law schools ought to do. I think that uh, uh, law schools don't spend enough time thinking about how to teach problem-solving skills, given mm -hmm. that most of our students are going to go out into the legal profession and actually become 
problem solvers, mm -hmm. you hope, not just people who litigate uh, cases mm -hmm. and certainly not just appellate litigators. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I think that there are a range of things that law schools can, can do to try to prepare their students for the legal world that they're going to come into and to give them the range of skills and the range of knowledge that they need in that legal world. But I'm kind of a law school booster. You know, I don't, like, uh, I'm not, I haven't gotten to the, the court and say, oh, now I understand. They're, they're, they're doing everything wrong. Mm -hmm. Everything's got to change. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Let me ask you about one particular sort of academic um, trope in constitutional law and about the Supreme Court, which is this practice of attributing um, a theme or kind of a uh, agenda in a non-pejorative sense to different courts. So the Marshall Court was uh, uh, sort of, it took as its mission, it's an overstatement, but that's the idea, establishing the supremacy of the federal government. And for the Warren Court, it was dismantling Jim Crow segregation. Now, does that, does that way of thinking, I mean, the question, I guess, is whether that's just kind of an after-the-fact historical construct that may be useful for historical purposes, or is that something that, that has some relevance to your work? I mean, not so much day-to-day, -day, but maybe if you sit back at the end of term and think, you know, what's going on in this institution? Where is it going? What do I see as my long-term uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, way I think about myself and inside this institution and my colleagues? Does that, does that fit in there at all? Or as I say, is that just sort of something we look back afterwards and say, well, that's what they were up to? You know, I, I think I do think about questions like that, but I think it's very hard to know when you're in the middle whether you've hit it right or not. Mm -hmm. You know, as, as, as you say, when you think about the Marshall Court or the Warren Court, and someday people are going to be saying, okay, what about the Roberts Court? And, uh, and you can say some things about the, um, it's my fifth year, it's the Chief Justice's tenth year, and you can say some things about ten years of the Warren Court, uh, the, the Roberts Court. But, you know, when it's 20 years or when it's 30 years, the question of whether you'll say those same things or whether mm -hmm. you say different things, I think is entirely uncertain. And I think that's true even year by year, that you have a, a, some sense of where the court's heading as an institution with respect to particular issues, and then you can be surprised. And all of a sudden, you have to kind of readjust your sense of what it means to be the Roberts Court with respect to some issue X. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think it's only after the fact that you can really confidently say, oh, that was, you know. Right. And while, while it's happening, I think uh, it's, I don't think it's an artificial construct to, th to think in those sorts of ways. I think it's just, it's not clear whether you're going to be right mm -hmm. as, you, uh, as you think year by year, term by term, what all this means. Mm -hmm. Does any of that thinking play a role, do you think, in, I mean, what, what, the way you approach your job, the way your colleagues do, or is it, is it too much, you know, we've got these cases, we've got to decide whether to grant the case, and if it's granted, we have to decide it. And the idea that we would actually have, even in some subtle back-of-the-mind sense, an idea of where we want it to go, that, you, you know, you can't do that because of the press of business, or is that not the case? And, in fact, you can have that sort of sense of what, what um, uh, the direction which you hope or want to, want to see the court go. Well, I, I think the two uh, can go together. I mean, I think we do, most of us, all of us, take it a case at a time and think seriously about the case before us. But uh, also for most of us, we've seen a lot of other cases, me fewer than all the rest of my colleagues. But I can already see that as you go through this job, year by year by year, uh, 
you start seeing issues, the same kind of issue, even if not the same exact issue, they start coming back around. And what you thought of the, of the issue when it was there before you the last time has some effect on what you think of a pretty close issue mm-hmm. uh, that you're confronting this time. And I, th- I think that sense of uh, internal single justice precedent, if you will, mm-hmm. is, is something that you do say, and that even somebody as new as I am feels a little bit. Like, well, what did I do when I saw this three years ago? And, uh, and, and so a sense of sort of internal consistency in what you're doing, which is not the most important value. I mean, the most important value is actually paying close attention to the case before you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but one is influenced by what one has thought about very similar things before. And I think similarly, uh, you think about, well, where does this lead? And in some ways, you absolutely have to do that. You have to do that. Somebody comes to the court and they make an argument. And uh, you know, are you going to say, oh, I'm just deciding this case without thinking about the consequences of that decision for the next case and the next case and the next case? that might be a little bit different, and you try to play out in your head what those differences are and, and how they ought to affect decision-making in this case. And then more generally even, I think, uh, 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 at least for me, that I, I, I do um, uh, have a sense of, you know, now that I've, I've thought about this issue a little bit and I've seen two or three cases about it, uh, where do I think this law is heading with respect to this issue? And do I think that that's a good place for it to head, or should we sort of, you know, try to turn the steering wheel a little mm-hmm. bit? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think you'd kind of think about past, present, future a little bit all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does this come into the cert practice too? I mean, is it? Sort of, is there a sense? Either, I mean, you or your colleague, would you have observed the sense that, you know, something is amiss in this area of the law? That there's, you know, just to give sort of examples on opposite sides, there's there's overcriminalization, or that there's not enough leeway being given to law enforcement, something like that. And we really need to be looking for cases that'll kind of right the balance. That that's that should be on our agenda on the on the cert side, where the court can control things to a to a greater degree than maybe when you got a case before and you have to decide that case. Yeah, I'm not sure it plays out all that strongly in the CERT mm-hmm. aspect. I think that uh, our, our decision-making for CERT is actually pretty uh, simple. And huh. you know, maybe some people think it's simple-minded, which is, uh, uh, is there a conflict out there? Mm-hmm. And if there's a conflict, we take a case. You know, Sometimes we think, well, it's not really a conflict. It's only a shallow conflict. We'll let it play out a little bit further. But if there's a conflict, we take a case. It kind of doesn't matter whether it's terribly, terribly important or not so terribly important, uh, that we think of ourselves as having a role in unifying federal law across the United States, that that's an important part of our function. Um, uh, you know, and there are some of us that almost uh, will not ever vote for cert on a case without a conflict on the theory of it can't be that important or it can't be that wrong if mm-hmm. If, uh, if there aren't people who have struggled and divided over it below. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. so um, which is not to say that what you're talking about never happens, that, that, uh, that I can think in my head of people who, who have like a bee in uh, their bonnet about some particular issue and are sort of looking for cases or ways to move the court on that issue. 
but I think it's, it's actually a quite small part of the cases that we grant. Interesting. Right. Okay, let me, let me close with two kind of questions about life as a justice. Um, before you went to Washington to be SG and then you're SG for a little over a year before President Obama appointed the court, but before that you were, you were dean of the Harvard Law School, which means you're running a big institution and you have to deal with multiple constituencies with students and staff and faculty and alumni and the university and fundraising and travel and phone calls and meetings. Um, that doesn't sound much like what I imagine a justice's life to be. Sounds like Mike's job. Sounds like Mike's job. Yeah. Um, so do you miss that? Uh, I, used to, I used to think that you could, you could tell that I was changing jobs by counting up the number of emails I got in a day. So at, 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 at Harvard, when I was dean, I would get 300 emails in a day, and they all had to be answered that day, you know? <laughs> and then when I became SG, it was like a big day if I got 40 or 50. And now I'm like, wow, that was an email. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so there's no question that the pace of the job is very different from some of the other jobs I've had in the past, not, not so much from others. Um, and there are things that I miss about, uh, about my old life. I'll tell you what I, I most uh, miss, but then I'll tell you that really nobody should feel sorry for me because this is one heck of a good gig I have. You know? <laughs> um, but the thing I most miss is the opportunity to... Um, uh, the thing about being a dean was that you had to learn a different set of skills or you had to use a different set of skills every single day. You know, that one day you had to be a great teacher and the next day you had to be a great fundraiser and the next day you had to be a great communicator and the next day you had to be a great bridge builder and negotiator mm-hmm. and, then, and so on and so on and so on. And across a whole wide range of different subject matters. I mean, one day you were building a building and the next day you were putting together a law school curriculum. And, and, there, and, and for somebody, you know, my favorite part of uh, a job, any job, is, uh, is when I feel as though I'm learning something. And when I feel as though I'm not learning something, I get a little bit antsy. And, it was, and, and being Dean was an incredible job for always feeling as though the learning curve was vertical, Mm-hmm. because there was such a variety of things you had to do and such a variety of skills you had to master. And, um, and that's, uh, in some sense, not so much true anymore. Just in, in like, every, when I go into the office every day, I kind of know what the pace of every day is going to be and the kinds of things I'm going to be doing every day in a way that is not true of a dean's job. You know, on the other hand, on the other hand, uh, the substantive issues that come before me, every one of them is different. So every one of them is, you know, learning a new subject matter, learning a bunch of new arguments, trying, and uh, at least sh- surely right now, and I hope it's the same in my 10th year, in my 20th year, in my 30th year, um, uh, is, you know, I do feel as though I'm learning a lot about uh, uh, not just different aspects of law, but about the practice of judging, and about how to how to write opinions and 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 all kinds of different things. So, uh, so it's a little bit you know more uh, you know there are some days in in June after we we, we finish arguments in April, and and then you 
work on all the opinions that uh, that you haven't issued yet, circulated yet. And you know, there there are some days in June where I'll think uh, it has been months uh, since I did anything else other than sort of like come in the morning, park myself in front of my computer, and uh, and just and just write stuff and then leave and do it all again the next day. Um, but uh, but it's 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 you know it's fun if you like thinking about law and reading about mm-hmm. law and writing mm-hmm. about law mm-hmm. and uh, all of those are good things you know mm-hmm. I like doing all of those things and then uh, you know obviously uh, you know as I say there are compensations I mean it's incredibly uh, interesting intellectually and it's a place where you can feel as though you're making a real difference and uh, uh, and where your job uh, you know matters mm-hmm. and and so uh, you know it's it's for me it's both a, a joy and it's an incredible privilege to have the job I have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one last question, which in a way you've just anticipated, which is, I guess I want to say, what, what, what do you perceive as the occupational hazards of the job? And here's what I have in mind. You mentioned earlier today that, that well, you know, that you, you don't, you're not used to getting interrupted. That in your current job, you don't ever get interrupted. And, you know, people stand up when you enter the room, for heaven's sake. Uh, uh, so are there things that you see... Is that see? wrong? <laughs> no, sorry. Uh, are, there, are there things that you sort of, you think, you know, uh, if, well, I'm, gonna, I'm planning on staying in this job a long time. I have to be alert to the possibility that things are going to happen to me that I don't want to see happen to me. That yeah. I'm going to become a kind of person that I want to become, and I really have to kind of put up some barriers against that. Are there, are there things in that category? Yeah, that's interesting. We just had an argument uh, last week, two weeks ago. Uh, it was a case about judicial fundraising. And one of my colleagues, Justice Sotomayor, one of the questions that she asked sort of went something like this. Uh, I'm a judge, and, and I just know from my life that when I ask a person to do something, that person pretty much always says yes. Uh, and, and I think that that's kind of right, that the way people interact with you changes. When you're a dean, nobody ever says yes. So <laughs> it's really a nice change in that respect. But, um, but uh, you know, they're very eager to please you. Uh, people laugh at your jokes even when they're not funny. Yours are uh, always funny. Oh, of course. Always. Right. <laughs> Uh, as you say, you walk into a room and people stand up. I mean, people treat you in a certain kind of way, which, um, which sometimes is like, just stop. Just like, uh, 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 you know, just like go back to I'm just Elena. Um, and sometimes people sort of say Justice Kagan. I'm like, Who is that person? <laughs> um, uh, but at the same time, you realize that you, uh, even in just five years, you get used to certain kinds of things. So what struck me the first year as just craziness now kind of seems, oh, that's just what people do. When, and, and then you, worry, you start worrying, I think, in, a, in, 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 in this sort of way that it changes who you are as a human being when people treat you with that kind of honestly undeserved deference. Uh, and so you do, I think, think about ways to keep yourself grounded and keep yourself being the same person that you were before you got to the court and people... Uh, started treating you as though uh, uh, you know you knew everything, but in fact you don't. And um, and so I think it's a really important thing for uh, us all. And this is true not just of you know justices. I think it's true of judges generally. 
in their communities, and their communities might be different, but uh, uh, whether you're the, 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 the family court judge or the traffic court judge or the uh, circuit court judge or the, the Supreme Court justice, I think people do have a sense of like these people who put on their robes somehow acquire this uh, mystique uh, that makes them not real human beings. And in some sense, the courts are... Uh, you know, it's good that people think that what we do is considered and thoughtful and, and not just the seat of our pants and that there are, uh, uh, you know, that we, the authority that these institutions have is a good thing for our country. And if, mm-hmm. if part of mm-hmm. that is people seeing us in a certain kind of way, then maybe that's not bad. But I think it's important, um, you know, uh, at least it's important for me and you know who knows how successful I have been, who knows how successful I will be at this, to prevent it from making me uh, uh, a different person than the person I think I am. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And we'll uh, open it up for questions now. Uh, Thank you, Justice Kagan. Uh, As a member of the court, not only your words, but your ideas and your reasoning and your logic and your thinking is put under very intense scrutiny. I mean, your opinions are read and analyzed by everyone from lowly law students to jurists and lawyers and presidents. Did you find it an adjustment to that, had to deal with that intense scrutiny, and how has it affected both you and your ideas? Well, I mean, gosh, you hope that people read it, you know? <laughs> uh, you know, better than they should read it, than they shouldn't read it. Uh, but, you, you know, of course, uh, look, there are so many reasons to try to get it right that I think that the idea that people are reading it is it's, it's, uh, just one. First, the most important thing is that you get it right for the parties and for the future development of the law. And, uh, and, and you know, what, what grade people are going to give your opinions you know, is, um, I, I guess it, it strikes me as not, uh, all, you know, not, not more important than that is. And that's enough pressure, you know? So I think, I, think, I don't know, for me, I can't kind of think about, oh, uh, uh, you know, I guess the other thing is, is everything I write, some people are going to like and some people are not going to like. And that's just, or almost everything. I mean, not you know, you, some, maybe sometimes everybody agrees, but uh, on a lot of the stuff I do, uh, uh, and, and some of the more public stuff I do, the things that people more comment on, some people will like it and some people won't like it. And so you have to kind of get used to that as part of the job. I think you probably have to get used to that as part of life, just about everything important that people do. Some people will like it, some people won't like it. So I think it's, uh, at least for me, it's not very uh, helpful for me to think about like, what are all these people going to think when they read it, this, this opinion, and how are they going to grade it. Um, uh, it's kind of enough pressure and enough, uh, enough uh, of, of what I think is the important thing, just thinking about uh, you know, trying to make sure that you're actually doing the best job you can. And not just getting it right in the result, because I think you're absolutely right that the way we explain ourselves matters a great deal. But to try to you know, get it right in terms of the reasoning and the logic and 
the persuasive power of what I do. But, you know, as to the reception, it is what it is. Uh, thank you, Justice Kagan. Um, there have been articles published recently about a small cadre of former SCOTUS clerks that are now members of the Supreme small, Court. I'm sorry, say that again. A small cadre of former SCOTUS clerks that are now members of the Supreme Court bar that have a monopoly over cases granted cert. Do you think that exists? And if it exists, do you think it's a problem? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I've, I, I read those articles. I mean, for the most part, as I said to Professor Strauss, I think that the uh, what's happened to the Supreme Court bar is a, is a very good thing. Um, we get better lawyering as a result of it. We get better briefing. We get better argument. Um, and, and, you know, I haven't gone and one of the, I thought that one of the surprising things about those pieces of, our, of, of those artic- articles was how many of our cases are represented by those lawyers at the search stage. Because I guess I had thought a little bit more that all those lawyers were um, uh, taking over those cases after a case had been uh, granted already, which I'm kind of all in favor of. It's, I think what those articles suggested as a real question is, does it influence uh, us in ways that shouldn't, uh, the, you know, the quality of the lawyering in terms of what cases we take? And I have not really gone back and looked at uh, exactly what those articles were based on. You know, my guess is that in, 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 one of the things that's happening because people have gotten used to the idea of the, there being a fair, you know, a relatively small, very professionalized Supreme Court bar is that people are giving them cert-worthy cases earlier so that it's not so much that these lawyers just know the right buttons to press, although I'm sure there's, some, there's something to that, but it's not... It's not really all about that, as the fact that people understand that quality of lawyering matters on the margins and that they're giving pretty obviously cert worthy cases to them sort of from the get go and allowing them to file the cert petitions. Um, so that's the, I, I don't have much more about, just, I mean, it is, uh, it, it's, it's an interesting set of questions that those articles raise that I hadn't really focused on in the past. Um, as to, you know, is it just that these lawyers are so good that they're having, making us grant cert on cases that we wouldn't ordinarily or vice versa? And my guess is that that's not what's going on. I, I just in, When I think about the way we grant cert, it, it doesn't seem to me to have very much to do with the quality of the lawyering at that stage. So I guess I would uh, resist a little bit that notion. It just, it just strikes me as not very reflective of my own experience, how I think about granting cert. Um, uh, And just just think it has more to do with folks getting those cases to those lawyers earlier and earlier. Uh, And as I said, for the most part, I think the fact that we get briefs and hear arguments from those lawyers is a really good thing. And the only thing that makes me uh, queasy about the whole is that there are uh, I think that there's one set of litigants which, uh, which has not figured this out yet, or not that the, the litigants haven't, but that the lawyers haven't. Um, if you look across the range of the cases we take, uh, I think that the litigants who are uh, underserved in terms of the lawyer and quality are criminal defendants. Uh, uh, it's not anybody in the, in the business world, nor is it anybody in the 
in, in the uh, you know, uh, unions, consumer groups, uh, uh, all of those groups, I think, uh, are getting fantastic lawyering at the Supreme Court. I think that the place where it's less the case and less consistently the case is with respect to criminal defendants. And, and I find this sort of troubling because uh, it's not as... Uh, act, uh, they could. I mean, if their lawyers gave up these cases, there are plenty of people who would take these cases essentially for free. There are law school clinics now all over the place that do extremely high-quality work. Uh, and what? But and every time uh, one of these cases comes to the court, where the trial lawyer and the person might be a terrific trial lawyer is doing the first Supreme Court argument without having, without really thinking about the court, without thinking about the way it operates, uh, uh, rather than giving over one of these cases to an experienced Supreme Court bar member. That's when I get a little bit upset about the. Uh, about this aspect of what we do now. Thank you. I read that you recently began hunting with Justice Scalia. Who's a better shot? <laughs> uh, he is. <laughs> but, but that's easy because he's been doing it a lot longer than I, than I have. Uh, uh, so, you know, I'm hopeful that one day I'll surpass him. Uh, There's actually a little bit of a story about that. I went went, uh, duck hunting with him in Mississippi just before Christmas. It is by no means my first trip hunting with Justice Scalia. I think uh, we go quail shooting a couple of times a year out in Virginia, just like day trips. And uh, I went on a trip with him to Montana a few years ago where we shot uh, deer and antelope. And uh, so... uh, uh, most people who know me think that this is a puzzling thing that's happened to me <laughs> in, in the last five years. You know, when you said, like, mm-hmm. how has it changed you? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people yep. who know me say, what is the deal with this, yep. you know? Yep. Yep. Uh, and, 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 and the deal with this goes as follows, is um, when you go through the confirmation process these days, the thing you're asked about most, everybody thinks it's going to be, like, everybody wants to know about abortion or something like that, and it's not. The thing you're asked about most as you go from office to office to office, you do all these courtesy visits with all the senators. I did about 80 of them, 82, but who's counting? <laughs> um, and you go office to office, and everybody, Democrats, Republicans, doesn't matter, asks you about the Second Amendment and guns. And, be, uh, and it's in part because these are very deeply meaningful uh, issues in, in, in many parts of the United States. And it's also because the NRA plays some in judicial confirmation politics, and so that they're hearing a lot from their constituents. Uh, at least for somebody like me, you know, appointed, uh, nominated by a Democratic president, and very urban-looking, seeming, sounding in uh, in the way uh, in the things that the public hears about me. So I've just got an enormous number of of questions about this, but they can't really just ask you, you know, so what did you think about that Second Amendment case, and what do you think about the next one? So the proxies are, well, um, have you ever hunted? <laughs> does any, does your family, does anybody in your family hunt? Does any, do any of your friends hunt? Does anyone you know hunt? <laughs> and, um, and, you know, my, my responses to this, even to my own ears, they sounded a little bit pathetic. Uh, because it was like, no, 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 no. You know, and I'm this, like, honestly, 
Jewish girl from New York City. <laughs> this is not what we did on a weekend, you know? <laughs> so I'm sitting in, this is a long story, but I'm sitting in a senator from Idaho's office, and he's sort of running me through this list of questions, and he's talking to me about how he, he hunts on his ranch and how meaningful it is for him and for many of his constituents, which I'm, I'm sure it is. And, you know, no, 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 it's, it's, uh, I, I, it, uh, it's very real, the, the kinds of feelings people have about, about this. And, but I was feeling a little bit punchy and I was feeling a little bit like, gosh, I've, asked these, I've answered these questions 60 times and I'm a little bit tired of hearing myself answer them. And I, I said, Senator, you know, I said, this is not an experience that I've ever had and, um, and not an opportunity I've ever had, but if you would like to take me hunting, I would love to come. And this look of total horror passes over. <laughs> and, and the White House aide who's sitting next to me is, is really about to keel over at this point. Um, so I said, well, Senator, I said, yeah, um, uh, sorry, I probably went a little bit far. I didn't really mean to invite myself hunting with you. Um, uh, I said, but uh, I'll tell you what, uh, uh, I'll make you this promise that if I'm lucky enough to be confirmed, I'll ask Justice Scalia, who I knew to be a great hunter and a very avid hunter, to take me hunting. And so when I got to the court, I went to Nino and I said, uh, this is the only promise I made in 80 courtesy visits. <laughs> and would you help me keep it? And he thought it was hilarious, <laughs> hilarious. And he's, he really is a very avid hunter and he loves it and people when they love activities sort of like to have other people love them too. He was incredibly generous and, um, and asked me if I would, you know, he, first he took me to his hunting club and I started shooting clay pigeons. And then he has this group of hunting buddies and uh, they ask me all the time and sometimes I go, uh, I go bird shooting with them in Virginia. And then he's had me on a couple of these bigger trips. And really, actually, I quite enjoy it. I mean, I enjoy his company uh, enormously, but uh, uh, surprise, surprise, I sort of enjoy the activity itself too. <laughs> so I've had, I've had a great time learning how to do it. Thank you again for being here, Justice Kagan. With regard to a couple of areas of law, you've worn a lot of hats in terms of being an administrative law scholar who sort of has big theories of how things work, and then as an advocate trying to strategize for a result, and now as a judge. Do you ever find cases where you sort of feel like all of those hats are bearing down on you in different directions? And how do you look at cases where you may have written something that looks at a case one way and argues something that makes a case seem like it should come out another way, and now you've got these briefs on the table in front of you. Yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's actually the way I think about my life a lot, is I, I keep on, like, taking one hat off and putting another hat on. Uh, but for me, it's once you take that hat off and once you put another hat on, a whole new set of responsibilities and really ethical obligations go with whatever role you're playing at the time. And, you know, for me, I found it uh, not the most difficult thing in my life, actually almost an easy thing, to be able to say, okay, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm, doing, I'm, I'm playing instead this different role, and a different set of things comes along with that role, and I'm just going to have to, uh, you know, that's, that's what I do now. And a lot of life is like that. I think a lot of lawyers' life is like that. And for sure, uh, uh, I, had, I had done it you know, a lot of times before I got to the court, so the transition from professor to dean, 
Now, there were a set of things that I decided as a dean I just wasn't going to talk about and wasn't going to say that I would have talked about as a professor because I felt as a dean I was a steward of an institution and what most mattered was the health and welfare and well-being of the institution, which sometimes was not aided by Elena Kagan, individual law professor, spouting her mouth off about things. So that was uh, one kind of thing. And then you become Solicitor General. I have to say, all the time as Solicitor General, I found myself taking positions that I knew if I were a judge, uh, I, wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't agree with. And that's just part of the job, because it better be part of the job, because your job is to represent the long-term interests of the United States. It's not to make the best law, or the fairest law, or the most wonderful law around. It's to represent a particular client with a particular set of repeat uh, interests. And you know, I remember as Solicitor General, pretty much the first thing I did is I got to the court, and uh, the court issued an order for re-argument of, uh, 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 in a criminal case, which, where it was pretty clear that what the court was thinking was uh, cutting back in a particular way on uh, uh, Miranda and the decisions that had grown out of Miranda. And you know, I was very conscious, because it was kind of like my first day on the job, that this is something where I was pretty darn sure I was not going to, uh, it, the, the direction the court was going was not going to be a direction that I thought uh, was, uh, was the right one if I had been a judge. But I mean, I thought about it for two seconds before I knew you know, uh, what the SG does is, is obviously to represent the prosecutorial side in criminal cases, and that's just what you do. And, uh, and so I think you choose your jobs based on your sense of uh, if, you, if you take on the entire role, and, and, and you have to take on the entire role, you can't do it halfway, and ask yourself, you know, is that comfortable for you? And if it's not comfortable, don't take the job. But if it is comfortable, you have to assume the whole set of responsibilities and obligations that attend to particular jobs. And, uh, uh, and you know, the same, for, the same for being a judge. It was, it was funny, because um, just a couple of weeks ago, we had a First Amendment case. And speaking about how people treat judges differently, uh, you know, this was a case in which like everybody and his brother was quoting some law review article that I had written many, many, many years ago. And you knew that they would not be quoting this law review article, except that they were kind of talking to me. I mean, it was a good article, but it was not. <laughs> it was not like the thing that like made or, or didn't make this case, and it was not the greatest thing that had ever been written. But everybody, everybody was quoting it because it was like talking to me. And, and I thought kind of, you know, number one, I wrote that 20 years ago. Maybe it's still what I think, but maybe not. But the other thing is, as you just said, what you, what you write as a law professor, kind of like, oh, we should do it this way, might have absolutely nothing to do with what you think the responsible thing to do as a judge is. Because as a judge, it's not just like, oh, well, maybe we should do it this way. It's like, well, but would that be a good thing to do given all the precedents that have come before and how does your great idea relate to the way the court has been operating in this context and, and uh, maybe you should just leave your good idea in the law review, you know? <laughs> and maybe it's like not right to impose it in the US reports, that sort of thing. 
All I'm saying is like different roles have like different responsibilities attached to them. And uh, I guess my theory is that you, when you move jobs, you slough off the one and you take on the other. Thank you. Time for one more question, sir. You mentioned that your oh, you, you mentioned that your uh, main job now is to try to find a way to convince eight other people. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit what that process is like for you, and then also what it's like whenever you're watching the other eight people interacting, doing the same thing. Yes. Well, of course, that's the, what's very funny, right? Is that it's it's a uh, you realize everybody's trying to do it to everybody else at the same time, and and uh, and then you also realize that you know not everybody is persuadable on everything, uh, and. Uh, and there are some things that we do where almost nobody is persuadable. But still, uh, but there are a lot of things we do where, where, where uh, folks are. And you know, I remember my first conference, we, uh, we had two cases. And one was a pretty high profile case. Was, I forget what it was, but it was you know, the kind of thing that you knew was going to make it to the front page of the newspapers when the decision came out. And the other wasn't like that at all. It was a procedural case. It was uh, a little bit arcane. I'm not even sure it was very important as a procedural issue. And I walk into conference, and the first case, basically we just all, the, the, the rule is you just go around the circle, go around the table in seniority order. Chief goes first, and then everybody by length of tenure. Nobody can speak twice before everybody speaks once. Very good rule if you're the ninth person, all right? <laughs> and, uh, and in the first case, we just went around the table. Every person said his or her piece. You know, the whole thing lasted 10 minutes, 12 minutes, something like that, and then done, ended. And then the next case, which was, as I said, this much more, uh, you know, certainly less high-profile kind of case, we all go around the table uh, and, and, and say our piece, and then, and then conversation breaks out. And we sat there and we sort of tossed ideas back and forth and asked each other questions and tried to persuade each other uh, that, uh, that we were right or wrong and, uh, for another 40 minutes. And I said, I, you know, I left the conference and I thought, you know, if anybody saw this, they would say that we were crazy. But as I've thought about it more and as I've had a, a little bit more experience, I think that it, what we did that day actually made lots of sense, that there are some cases where, uh, you know, for whatever reasons, because people have strong methodological commitments, because they've seen this issue before, because it's, it's really clear sort of what the, how the lines shape up and, and, and where different people fall on that dimension. Um, where, you know, all the, where if you said, is more talking going to accomplish something? You might say the only thing it will accomplish is to make these people a little bit annoyed at each other, you know? And we're an institution, we're a very collegial institution, notwithstanding the fact that we have all these opportunities for disagreement. And I think part of the reason is that when we see an issue where there's just a pretty clear, strong divide, we say our piece. It's not like people stop talking. We say our piece, but then it's like, okay, enough. Um, whereas when we, when we have an issue uh, where there's a real opportunity for persuasion and for, uh, for trying to get to a consensus or just trying to get to a better answer, even if that doesn't draw all members of the court, 
I think we all try to take that. And so, uh, so some cases it's going to be that way and other cases not. I have to say that my favorite cases are the cases where there's an opportunity to do that. I find some of the others, the ones where we kind of say our piece and either you win or you lose and you go home, a little bit uh, unsatisfying, you know. Uh, it's nicer to win than to lose, but either way. It's like I love the stuff where we can all really engage each other, try to persuade each other, try to get to a better writer uh, answer based on the materials that we have before us as a result of talking about it. And I think that this goes back to the very first question that Professor Strauss asked me about sort of what happens in that conference room. I think that we uh, sound that way and do that uh, quite a lot more than people give us credit for. And, uh, and, and, and that's what I really appreciate and relish about the institution. Thank you very much for the take questions. Thank you. Well, and thank you. Uh, thank you so much for braving the blizzard and coming here and sharing your incredible insights with us, your warmth, and participating all day in the life of the law school. So we have a token of our appreciation and affection for you. Uh, it is a, it's a long-standing tradition at the law school that we give books uh, as gifts to people who matter to us. Now, in your high school yearbook, you quoted Justice Felix Frankfurter, who, like you, was a Harvard Law professor turned justice of the Supreme Court and a scholar of administrative law. So today, we're going to give you a first edition of Justice Frankfurter's wow. lectures on responsibilities of citizenship, which he inscribed to his co-author of the famous administrative law casebook. We hope that you'll enjoy oh, it. What, what, how incredible. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.